What is up, Iwu crew? The case we have for you today is shocking and disturbing, and one many of you may have heard of. It is one of those cases that is almost unbelievable, especially considering it all happened right under our noses. But incredibly, it's all true. Let's get into it. J.C. Lee Dugard was born on May 3rd, 1980 to Terry Probin and Ken Slayton. However, the relationship between J.C.'s mother and father was short-lived. In fact, Ken had not even known that Terry was pregnant by the time they split. Terry soon became romantically involved with a man named Carl, who would later become her husband and the father of her second child, Shayna. In September of 1990, Terry and Carl decided to move their family from Los Angeles County to the rural town of Mayers, California. They couldn't have known the dark fate that decision would entail for their family. On the morning of June 10, 1991, near the end of the school year, 11-year-old J.C. woke and impatiently waited for her mother's good morning hug. The night before, J.C. had talked with her mother in an effort to emphasize the importance of her mother giving her a proper hug and a kiss before leaving for work. But sadly, J.C. heard the sound of the front door click shut as her mother left without saying goodbye. Perhaps if J.C.'s mother could have known the tragedy that would strike later that day, she would have hugged J.C. tightly. J.C. knew that if she spent any longer lingering in her bed, her stepfather, Carl, would grow impatient with her, especially if she made herself late for the bus. Carl, it seemed to J.C., didn't love her as much as her half-sister, Shayna. So, to avoid having to ask Carl for a ride to school, J.C. went on with her regular morning routine as diligently as she could. J.C. dressed and matched her t-shirt with a ring that her mother gifted her just four years beforehand. The ring was a dainty silver band with a small butterfly shape that matched a birthmark of J.C.'s. Feeling that her stomach had been a bit queasy since she got up, she briefly debated asking Carl if she could stay home for the day. She decided against it as in her mind, She did not want to do anything that would make him dislike her even more than she felt he already did. Without so much as a proper conversation, J.C. waved goodbye to Carl and set off on the same walk to the bus stop that she had traveled what felt like thousands of times. Only this time, it would be completely different. As J.C. began the trek up the steep hill that led to the bus stop, She contemplated the events of the upcoming weeks as any 11-year-old would. Her entire grade was scheduled to go to a nearby water park in just a few days, and J.C. had been excited, yet nervous, for the trip, as she had recently grown more self-conscious about her body. As she crossed the road exactly where her mother had requested her to cross, J.C. became suddenly aware that she was not alone. Just a few feet behind her, following every step of the way, was an unfamiliar vehicle. Before she had time to react or even realize what the car's presence could mean, it was too late. 
The driver of the vehicle rolled down his window and J.C. stopped walking to cautiously approach him. Before she could even answer whatever feigned question he had asked, the man reached for J.C. As he did so, he fired a small black stun gun at her, causing her small body to convulse and collapse to the ground. Despite the sudden feeling of being shocked, J.C. tried everything in her power to get away. J.C. knew there were bushes behind her and thought that if she could make her way into them, she would be able to free herself and escape the stranger's grasp. Upon her struggle, the man fired the stun gun at her once more before he was able to get a tight grip on her. With one swift movement, the man pulled J.C. into the car and tossed her into the back seat and down onto the floorboards of the car. A blanket was thrown over her head quickly, and J.C. was met with the weight of a full-grown adult holding her down. When the car started moving again and the weight of another person was still crushing her, she realized that the man wasn't alone. As quickly as the incident had started, it was over. The man, his accomplice, and J.C. were gone. The entire incident that changed J.C.'s life forever had reportedly been witnessed by Carl, who had been watching J.C. walk towards the bus stop that morning. Unbeknownst to J.C., the stepfather, who she believed didn't like her, had actually chased her kidnappers on his mountain bike in a panicked effort to catch up with them. But there was nothing he could do. When the kidnapper's car finally came to a proper stop, J.C. was terrified. She overheard one of the people who had taken her laugh and say, I can't believe we got away with it. J.C. had no idea where she was, who she was with, or how she could, if at all possible, go back home to her mother. J.C.'s kidnappers, a man by the name of Philip Garrido and his wife, Nancy Garrido, forced J.C. to shower in their shared home before she was eventually moved. Still terrified and confused, J.C. was led by Philip into their backyard where there were two separate buildings that were almost identical to each other. The buildings were not large by any means, but they nonetheless were larger than most families' outdoor sheds. Philip led J.C. into one of the small buildings and removed the blankets that had been used to blindfold her throughout the incident. It was there, Philip instructed, that J.C. would sleep from now on. Leaving her with no clothes, no blankets, and no sense of where she was, Philip handcuffed her hands behind her back, exited the building, and locked the door behind him. And that is where J.C. would stay. Day in and day out, J.C. waited for someone, anyone, to come rescue her. Each time Philip came through the door that stood between her and freedom, J.C. had trouble discerning between whether she was worried or relieved. Days and nights blurred, and she soon had no concept of how much time had passed. But then, every few days... Philip would come to see J.C. so that he could assault her in ways that we cannot go into detail here on YouTube. Despite being a child, J.C. was quick to learn that Philip frequently used drugs like cocaine and speed and would refer to his inebriated moments as, quote, runs that could last days depending on his supply. 
During these runs, Philip would move J.C. from the primary building where she stayed to the one adjacent to it. There, he would keep her to use until the drugs wore off. Outside of the horrific ways in which Philip acted with J.C., he spent time brainwashing her into believing that he was her sole protector against the rest of the world. As is the case for most kidnapped children, Stockholm Syndrome caused J.C.'s perception of her kidnapper to be altered, if slightly. When he could, Philip would bring J.C. fast food and milkshakes, even little kittens because of her love for cats. Despite the affection shown on behalf of both Philip and Nancy, J.C. knew deep down that her abductors were bad people and that she was not supposed to be with them. Regardless, she relied on both of them for her own survival. As the years went on, J.C. received more freedoms in her twisted captivity as Philip and Nancy became more confident in their seemingly perfect crime. Nancy eventually confided in J.C. and even explained to her that Philip had a sex addiction and could almost never be satisfied. Nancy even went so far as to tell J.C. that they kept her captive so that Philip would not have to hurt any other little girls. As J.C. grew older, she was able to piece together the information gathered from her captors more coherently. Philip, she understood, was a pedophile. He not only kept photos and videos of himself and J.C., he also took pictures of children at parks and other public places for his own entertainment. On Easter Sunday of 1994, four whole years after J.C. had been abducted, Philip and Nancy noticed that J.C.'s body was changing in a way that was indicative of a pregnancy. At 13 years old, J.C. discovered she was carrying her kidnapper's child. Barely just turned 14, J.C. not only had to give birth to a baby on the floor of her kidnapper's studio-sized shed, she also found herself pregnant once more shortly after the birth of her first daughter. The horror of being pregnant when she was just a child herself was slightly mitigated. As J.C. later said, I felt like I wasn't alone anymore. I had somebody that was mine and I knew I could never let anything happen to her. With the addition of J.C.'s two children, the way that Philip, Nancy, and J.C. regarded each other changed drastically. In J.C.'s mind, as a result of Philip's constant brainwashing, they were essentially one big family. Philip understood that J.C.'s children would eventually need to attend doctor's visits, school, and other things out of his own control. So, when J.C.'s daughters were still quite young, Philip encouraged them to refer to Nancy as their mother and assured them that J.C. was their sister. Around the same time, Philip instructed J.C. to pick a new name for herself, and she chose the name Alyssa. For the rest of her time in captivity, J.C. was forced to separate herself from her true identity in an effort to keep Philip's dark secret. With each year of J.C.'s captivity that passed, Philip and Nancy grew braver in their endeavors. In fact, they started taking J.C. along on trips with the babies to the beach. 
Nancy would even take JC out for girls' days, where the two would get their nails done and go shopping with whatever expendable income they had at the time. With every outing, JC understood that if she opened her mouth and revealed her name and situation to anyone, her entire life would change again. But since she had children who she cared for more than anything else in her life, she refrained from telling anyone or seeking help as she worried that Philip would take her children away from her. In the late 1990s, JC began journaling almost daily. She would reflect on the day's events, log information about her children, and even, on occasion, write about her desires to see her mother again and get away from Philip and Nancy altogether. There, in her kidnapper's backyard, JC became a mother herself, a stay-at-home teacher for her children and a nobody to the rest of the world. That is, until the course of her abduction changed forever. Beyond the horror that Philip Garrido inflicted on J.C., he also had a history of arrests. In fact, J.C. had not been the first girl he had kidnapped. Rather, she was the one who lasted the longest. And, as a result of his criminal history, Philip was often under the scrutiny of the police. He was arrested frequently during the time that he had been holding J.C. captive and the police officers who monitored him had been none the wiser to her being held in his home. In some ways, the police failed to rescue J.C., as they didn't put two pieces of important information together. When she was first taken, the police didn't notice that Philip had taken her from the exact same location where he had kidnapped and assaulted Catherine Calloway Hall, a crime he had committed 15 years before taking J.C., as well, there were other incidents that should have indicated that something peculiar was happening at Philip's residence. In 2002, the fire department came to the home after a child had been reported to have injured their shoulder in Philip's pool, though no children were known to be living with him. As a known pedophile, his parole officer should have been notified Philip was near children, but the information was never shared. As well, a 2006 incident resulted in Philip's neighbors calling the police. They had reported that children were living in tents in the backyard and even called Philip, quote, psychotic. An officer arrived, but after a 30-minute conversation, they left. On any one of these occasions, J.C. could have been discovered. As a result of Philip's intense drug addiction and use, his strange patterns of thinking escalated quickly as he aged. Philip was certain that he could invent a system that would allow for other people to hear what he was thinking, as he believed himself to be a chosen servant of God. Philip would often go on raging rants about his beliefs, and J.C. worked hard to keep her children safe from him when he would grow upset. Philip had spent numerous hours thinking over his feelings about religion and sexuality. Over and over again, he would write his ideas down, tear the paper up, and rewrite until he believed he had it perfect. On August 24, 2009, Philip decided that he was ready to let law enforcement know that he had worked for years to try to cure his criminal behaviors so that others could be cured too. 
He had written a four-page manifesto explaining how he managed to, quote, control human impulses that drive humans to commit dysfunctional acts. On that same day, he decided to take the essay to a University of California police office and made an appointment to do so the following morning. That appointment went south quickly, as he had brought his two daughters along with him. When officers ran a background check on Philip, they realized he was a registered sex offender and he was effectively violating his parole by being in the presence of minors. Philip assured everyone that the girls were the children of a relative and that they had permission to be in his company at the time. One of the officers present noticed that the two young girls were pale, so pale it seemed that they had not often been allowed in any form of sunlight. As well, their behavior appeared odd to him. The following day, Philip was instructed to follow up with the officers, as one had been highly concerned for the health and safety of the children in Philip's company. For some reason, Philip showed up to the parole office on August 26th with the two girls, Nancy, and, to her own surprise, J.C. The police immediately separated everyone in order to speak to them without the presence of Philip. Even when she was away from the others, J.C. refused to drop her fake identity in front of the officers, and even became agitated when she was pressed about her real name. For 18 long years, Philip had assured her that the world was full to the brim with evil, and that she could trust no one but him. And for much of her life now, there had been no J.C. Dugard. Hours into the series of interviews, Philip finally cracked. J.C. was shocked to find that Philip had actually confessed to having kidnapped her when she was just 11 years old. Upon hearing that the truth of her life was revealed, J.C. was ready to tell officers who she really was. One of the officers in the room slid a small piece of paper and a pencil across the table towards J.C., urging her to write her real name even if she felt too scared to speak it aloud. There, in the artificial lighting of the interrogation room, J.C. wrote, J.C. Lee Dugard. Once officers were able to properly confirm J.C.'s identity, they informed her that her mother would want to speak with her. After all, she had been missing her daughter for those 18 long years, assuming she was dead but hoping to God that she was not. For the first time since the day she was kidnapped, J.C. was able to hear her mother's voice and to tell her that she was alive. All those years she was gone, J.C. had managed to hold on to the butterfly ring her mother had gifted her when she was seven, in the hopes that she would see her again and still had it when they were finally reunited. When Philip was arrested for his crimes... J.C.'s two daughters cried, and even J.C. struggled with the emotional bond he had forged between them as her captor. During an interview while in jail, Philip said, In the end, this is going to be a powerful, heartwarming story. My life has been straightened out. Wait till you hear the story of what took place at this house. You're going to be absolutely impressed. It's a disgusting thing that took place with me at the beginning but I turned my life completely around. He claimed, seemingly unaware of the irony and contradictory statements, 
that by kidnapping J.C. and fathering children with her, he had changed his life for the better. In his view, these actions helped to reform him from a pedophile and kidnapper. In April of 2011, Philip and Nancy Garrido pled guilty to kidnapping and assault by force. By June of the same year, Philip was sentenced to 431 years to life imprisonment, and Nancy received 36 years to life imprisonment. J.C. did not attend Philip and Nancy's sentencing. Instead, she had her mother read a statement from her aloud to the courtroom. J.C. said, quote, To you, Philip, I say, I hated every second of every day of 18 years because of you. To you, Nancy, I have nothing to say. As I think of all those years, I am angry. You stole my life and that of my family. Now, well into her 30s, J.C. Dugard is a mother of two who is slowly learning how to return to a society she had been withheld from since she was 11. Since her escape, she wrote a book about her experiences and began rehabilitation into the world, including animal therapy with horses. She has also started the JAYC Foundation, in which she encourages others to, quote, just ask yourself to care and hopefully prevent others from enduring the torture she had gone through during her time in captivity. If there is one thing to be taken away from J.C.'s story, it is this. Strangers are lurking behind every corner. Keep an eye out for them to protect yourself and others.